Good morning. Uh, please read with me from John chapter 19, verse 17 through verse 30. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, where he, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each part, soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Lord Jesus, we ask for your spirit to be in us and on us, to give us understanding and the right heart attitude towards these things that we study. Bless your church with the word, just as you have blessed us by your cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as you know, uh, I'm sure, you cannot read the New Testament without encountering the cross. Uh, the crucifixion is quite literally the crux of the whole story, and indeed of every story, of all of history. The gospel, uh, the four gospel accounts focus on the hour that the Son of Man is glorified, which is the cross. All events in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John lean forward toward the cross. And the book of Acts includes examples of the apostles declaring Christ and Him crucified. And the epistles are, are full of references to the cross. And in Revelation, we see the Lamb of God sacrificed, slain before the foundation of the world, ruling in heaven. And this, of course, is part of your testimony, this, this passage that we read. As Paul says in Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. This is how your sins are forgiven. Uh, Colossians 2, verse 14 says that he has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
you're seeing the accusations against you on Christ being crucified. This is where we gain power to live the Christian life. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says that the cross, for those of us who are being saved, is the power of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, I know we've got a lot of verses here. Keep, keep up. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Your salvation, your sanctification is sourced from this place, from this cross. The power of the cross extends beyond, beyond this moment that we read of in John and, and beyond you and your experience, beyond our time and space. In Colossians 1.20 it says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul writes again in Galatians chapter 6 verse 14 that it wasn't just his sins that died, but the whole world system. He says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. The world in all of its temptations and sins is dead to us. And of course, in all this, blood and sorrow and power, we see the love of God more clearly than we could see it anywhere else. Romans 5 verse 9 says, But God demonstrated his own love towards us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is in the death of Christ where the love of God for humanity is demonstrated and displayed. And so we hear the call of Hebrews 12. And, Hebrews, and we hear the, the call of Jesus in Matthew 8, 34. Um, Hebrews 12, you know, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And it says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. This is a lens through which we view the story of the crucifixion. And Mark chapter 8, verse 34 says, If anyone would come after me, this is Jesus speaking to you, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. With these truths in mind, with these invitations at heart, let's go to our text in John. John chapter 17, or sorry, verse uh, 17, John 19, verse 17, says, And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, and one on either side, and Jesus in the center. Now, since the early church fathers, all you go all the way back, Christians have, have seen Christ carrying his cross here, as a, as a mystery and as a fulfillment of a mystery, a fulfillment really of, of Isaac carrying the wood for the sacrifice in Genesis 22. When God calls Abraham to say, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. When that happens, God is inviting Abraham 
into his plan and into his pain. It's the first place where the word love shows up in Scripture. It's it, it, to describe a beloved son, a father's love for his son. Now he is showing, God is showing Abraham what it is like to sacrifice, to give up a son. And in that chapter we read that Isaac carried the wood for the sacrifice. And here we see Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God, going up the same mountain, or at least the same mountain range, carrying the wood for the sacrifice, fulfilling what God had promised Abraham in uh, Genesis 22, that the Lord would provide himself a lamb. Jesus was most likely only carrying the cross bar, not the entire cross shape. Uh, having the criminal carry their own cross was part of the sentence, part of the, the um, crucifixion, part of the humiliation that they were trying to achieve. As they were led out on a sort of perverted parade, people would see the one carrying this beam and watch them be led to their death. The name of the place is given to us, the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is Golgotha, or if you translate place of the skull in Latin, you get Calvarie Locus, where we see the word Calvary. Um, there are different theories about where this place is in Jerusalem. There's a hill that sort of kind of looks like a skull, and so people have placed the location for the crucifixion there. Uh, it's possible that the place of the skull was called that because, and not because of its shape, but because there were many skulls there from past executions. Um, we might not know the exact location, but John does give it in order to share with his readers these details that make up history. Uh, they, the readers, would have known where Calvary was. And as skulls have always been a visual representation of death itself, we see Christ going toward the enemy of all humanity, towards that last enemy, death, walking towards our fears in order to conquer every last one of them. It is during this stage, this uphill walk on what has been called the Via Della Rosa, or the Way of Sorrows, when Jesus spends what is close to the, close to the, the, the last of his physical energy. You must remember that the night before this, he was already physically ill. In the garden, he sweat great drops of blood. That is not healthy. Uh, Hematrodosis, which is what it's actually called, this happens only under extreme emotional and psychological stress and distress. That's where Jesus was the night before, weak. Since then, he hasn't slept at all. He's been bullied, beaten, tied up, beaten some more. He's been whipped, scourged. He's had the crown of thorn placed on his head. If we take the Isaiah 50 passage as a literal prophecy of what Jesus would endure, then his beard has been plucked out at this point, and he has been spit on. Isaiah 50 verse 6. To say that he is exhausted doesn't even begin to describe the situation. He is spent. This is Jesus laying down his life. And we know, of course, that he was unable to carry the cross. And Simon of Cyrene uh, that we read about in Mark, is, is brought in to carry the cross the rest of the way. This is Jesus laying down his life. And verse 18 includes the actual act with so few words. You read in verse 18 and it, it simply says, and there they crucified him. Now all four Gospels are, are like this. Uh, they don't supply unnecessary details. They don't mention the nails in his hands, the nails in his feet. Um, they just say they crucified him. And for their audience, everyone knew what this meant, and, 
And it's quite likely that many who read these words would have had a physical response to the word, a stomach churning, a revulsion. The gospel writers are brief in their description here because they are simply being respectful to their audience. They would not include vulgarities or gratuitous violence for the sake of shock value. Crucifixion is simply not discussed in polite society. And, you know, we read in in the epistles, Paul talks a lot about the cross. And that would have been shocking to his readers, but he doesn't go into detail to describe how horrible crucifixion was. Because it's very likely that citizens in the Roman Empire had the misfortune of actually witnessing this atrocity, and therefore had no need for any details to be brought to their minds. Roman historian Cicero, he said, it is a crime to bind a Roman citizen. To scourge him is an act of wickedness. To execute him is almost murder. What shall I say, then, of crucifying him? An act so abominable it is impossible to find any words adequately to express. And it seems that the gospel writers and, and, and the apostles, the, uh, Paul, uh, in, agreed with this sentiment that there, it, it would be impossible to find any words adequately to express what was going on here. So they simply say, he was crucified. The Roman historian Tacitus called crucifixion a torture fit only for slaves. And the extremity of this evil is noted by Paul in Philippians 2 verse 7 where it says that Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, taking the form of a slave, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. But his cross wasn't the only one. His cross was not the only cross there on Golgotha that day. It says there were two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. It seems likely that there were four scheduled, Barabbas being the fourth. But in these three crosses, we actually see a snapshot of the whole of humanity. You see the Redeemer, you see the redeemed, and you see the lost. And Jesus is in the center in more ways than one. John leaves out the details of these the, the thief on the cross and his last minute conversion that gives many hope. And what he focuses on is just the the position. Christ the center. Again, this moment of Jesus on the cross is the defining moment for the human race and all of history. The cross stands as the center of humanity. Jesus is perfect man, and he lived among us. He has tabernacled among us, dwelt among us. Jesus is the center. He is also the center of conflict, and the center between extremes, belief and unbelief. On one side, we have repentance. On the other, rebellion. And on one side of Jesus, we see humility. On the other side, we see pride. Um, there are sheep and there are goats, and in the center is the good shepherd, and the center is the door. Jesus is at the center. And he is, of course, the center between God and man. A mediator is one who stands in the middle. And even in his death, Jesus symbolically shows this truth. And Jesus takes the role 
this role in the universe as the one who stands between fallen man and holy God and reconciles the one to the other. And this is what is happening. This is what is happening right now as we read this. God is judging all of humanity's sins on Jesus in order to reconcile man to his creator. Jesus is being crucified, but he is not alone. He is bearing your sin. And in a deep mystery, he is bearing you. As Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Jesus is going to death in order to bring all of your sins there. He is dying that he might put death to death, that he might, do, might undo sin, that he might save you from the punishment and just as important from the power of your own sins. This is the most important death that anyone has ever died because it is the death potentially that everyone has died. And once again, as we've seen in the weeks leading up to this, while Jesus is the one who's convicted and killed and he is the one suffering, he is the one in pain, it is everyone else who is tried and found wanting. Everyone else is condemned for the worst crime that humanity has ever committed. One such person, of course, is Pontius Pilate. In verse 19, it says, Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. The custom was not unusual, writing out the crime that the criminal has been convicted of, and then placing it at the top of the cross would have been a normal thing for people to, to see as they go by and see this man suffer. And then they see they would ask, why is he suffering so? And then they would look at the, at the, um, the charges brought against him. And the idea being that they would avoid such behavior. But remember, Pilate isn't an ally of these Jewish leaders. And Pilate is not an ally of Jesus by any means. Pilate doesn't have any friends right now. Right now, Pilate is not praising Jesus or making a confession of faith by saying king of the Jews. It would be impossible to do this while seeing to it that he is nailed to a cross and killed. What Pilate is doing by writing the king of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, is what he is a, he's doing is attempting to take the whole Jewish population down a few notches and at the same time insult their idea of a messiah. To say that this man, bloody and gruesome, with his crown of thorns in utter weakness from Nazareth, is the king of the Jews, is to insult all of Jewish theology, all of Jewish eschatology. This sign, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, is given in three languages, so no one is left out. One commentator said, in Hebrew, it is written in Hebrew for the Jews who gloried in the law, in Greek, for the Greeks who gloried in wisdom, in Latin for the Romans who most gloried in dominion and power. Of course, Christ has all those, those paradigms come crashing down where he shows strength in weakness here. Jesus is truly king over these people, but in this hour it is, it is all of these people who are condemned by their own actions. The Jews especially take offense at what has just happened. After all, this isn't a, a small linguistic detail that they're asking for 
um, in the, the editing stage, the words mean things. Pilate was saying officially that Jesus was being crucified because he is a king. The Jews want the charges changed. They want him to be killed because he claimed authority that was not rightfully his. Now you can see that these are very different things. But Pilate sticks to his guns. He leaves the sign as it is. And this is an example of one who is in authority speaking with more wisdom and insight than they naturally possess. Just like the the high priest prophesied that it was expedient for one man to die for the people, even though he didn't really know what he was saying. Did Pilate believe that Jesus was the king of the Jews? Not really. But was it true now that he was being killed because of his royalty? Yes. It was because Jesus is the son of God that they killed him. And it was because he was moving towards his throne in heaven, looking forward to being crowned with glory and honor, that he endured the shame, as we read last week in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2 verse 9 says, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus is the king, and it is in his kingly role that he endured the cross for his wayward subjects. And this accusation, of course, while true, Coming from Pilate, it is hollow. Jesus didn't commit a crime. You know, the thief on his right hand and the thief on his left hand no doubt had their crimes written in similar fashion, but they were actually crimes. If you were judged for your sins, the sins would were the, that were listed would be exactly that. They would be sins. But why did Jesus die? For what crime was he punished? He had no sin. He committed no crime. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Your list of offenses and the requirements that are set against you, these, Colossians says, were nailed to the cross. Verse 23, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from top, from the top in one piece. They said therefore among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. That the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now these soldiers would have been the official executioners. Um... They take Jesus' clothes and, and they gamble for them. And the paintings usually give Jesus some dignity and have him wear an undergarment of some kind. This is due to the sensitivity of the artist and the consideration for the viewer, not uh, for any care towards historical accuracy. Humiliation is the goal. Jesus is now dying, being judged for your sins and mine. And the soldiers are mocking him, continuing to show themselves to be scoffers, they, these soldiers who had mocked him, they had made the crown of thorns, they beat him, they now crucify him, they are throwing dice now for his coats, his sandals, his tunic. Um, the tunic here that is without seam was the garment worn closest to the skin. The last to come off, it wasn't a special or unusual piece of clothing. No one would have seen it as anything out of the ordinary. However, in the light of scripture, this is interesting for two reasons. Many have pointed out that the high priest, according to traditions based on Ezekiel 28, 31 and 32, that the high priest also wore a seamless garment. And of course, John shows that now there's a prophecy being fulfilled here, which is interesting. The soldiers unwittingly are fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 22. 
now at service at Town Hall, and, and we read Psalm 22 on Easter Sunday. Uh, Laura Hammers read it at the beginning of the service, and Psalm 22 describes the crucifixion nearly a thousand years before the events of the Gospels. And it is from that prayer, from the, um, from Psalm 22, where Jesus takes the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's right from uh, verse 1 of Psalm 22. And in verse 16, it says, They pierce my hands and my feet. And in verse 18, it says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. God is ordaining the events of this dark, dark day. And while Jesus dies for the sins of the world, at the foot of the cross there is a flippancy, a casual card game or dice maybe, and Jesus is being abused and abased by the scoffers. But the scoffers are not the only ones present. Just as Jesus is placed between the two thieves, one who repents and one who does not, so Jesus is surrounded now by soldiers who are killing him, and then also his mother and best friend are there as well. Verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her to his own home. Mary is here. Mary was at the cross suffering. Now, Mary has been with Jesus, really, for most of his ministry. I mean, as his mother, of course, she was the first on earth to get to know him. She was there with him more than anyone else. She was present at his first miracle. She was with him during much of his ministry. It seems that she, was, she may have even been one of the women supporting his ministry financially. And now she's here with him at his death. Now, of course, she is not suffering like Jesus is suffering. The whole point of this event is that Jesus is suffering in ways that no man has. He is suffering the wrath of God, but Mary is suffering as a mother. When Jesus was a child, we read that people said things about him, and then Mary treasured these things up in her heart. And one of the things that was said after uh, a, a prophecy of, of Jesus when he was an infant um, was a word from a man named Simeon at the temple, an old man in the temple that was waiting for the hope and consolation of Israel. But he says to Mary in Luke 2, verse 35, Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. And it was surely this moment that Simeon was prophesying of. Abraham, we mentioned in Genesis 22, Abraham was given a severe mercy, a harsh grace of sharing the heart of God. Not just knowing things about God that you could write down on paper, but knowing experientially what it feels like to have the heart of God. You know, we sing Hosanna, that includes the line, break my heart for what breaks yours. Well, this is, that happened for Abraham, and that's happening here with Mary. Now listen, all generations will call her blessed, Luke 1 but this doesn't look like part of the blessing, does it? However, all the other disciples had left except John. Everyone else in the story, all the way since chapter 18, everybody's been bad guys or failing good guys, except Mary. This doesn't look like a blessing at all, but we can, and we can hardly imagine that it would be, but Mary is the closest to the cross at this moment. She is the nearest one to Jesus. 
you know, and we sing, lead me to the cross, and we say, I come to the cross, and we, we sing, oh, the wondrous cross, and we wear them on our necks, and we are still trying in a way to go to the cross to lay our burdens down. And, and so we do believe that the cross is a place that we are to go in order to meet with Jesus. And Mary is there receiving this bitter blessing. No human in this scene suffered more than she, uh, other, than, other than Christ. But as the Lord has promised that he would be near to the brokenhearted, we can only hope and cling to the faith that the Holy Spirit was ministering to this wounded mother and we can have confidence that this would happen as Mary would be in the room where the Holy Spirit would fall on the day of Pentecost. She would be comforted. And as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn. If that is true, then we can call Mary blessed among women, just as she said we would. Now let's look at the other people here. His mother's sister, Jesus' aunt, is there. First name not given in John, but when you compare the other Gospels, you can actually determine with a high degree of confidence who this is. In Mark, there's a woman named Salome mentioned. In Matthew 28, verse 56, it says that the mother of Zebedee's sons is there. So there is at least some evidence here that his mother's sister is named Salome, Aunt Salome, and that she is the mother of James and John. This makes things interesting for a few reasons. Because for one thing, this means that James and John, who John who wrote this gospel, is Jesus' cousin. But it makes it interesting because of what Jesus says to John and Mary in verse 27 also. Behold your mother, behold your son. We'll get to that in a second. Next, there's Mary, the wife of Clopas. We don't know anything about her. Uh, some tradi church tradition had said that Clopas was one of the two disciples that Jesus met on the road to Emmaus. Probably not, though. Mary Magdalene uh, proves that Mary was a very common name. Now, you've heard of her. Mary was a woman out of, out of whom Jesus had cast seven demons. Um, some people confuse her with other women in the Gospels, um, but this is really all that we know about her, that she was a disciple of Christ, had been demon-possessed, and Jesus saved her from that. And here she is, being associated with the death of her Savior, being associated with a criminal, and as such, she will be able to be the first to see the risen Lord. In Mary Magdalene, we see a beautiful example of what we are called to. We are also called to associate with the cross, to take up our own crosses, to worship around the horrors of the crucifixion. And we do so in part because we, like Mary, know that we, what we have been saved from. But then we also see that it is this person who was with Jesus on the day of his death when all the disciples, minus John, had fled, who gets to be there in the garden outside the tomb and cling to Jesus. These were the women at the cross, but John was there as well. The only one of the twelve to be there with Jesus at this time. And then we read of this tender exchange where Jesus entrusts his mother to his friend and his friend to his mother, showing us Jesus' care for those he loves, even in this moment when no one would blame him for being a little self-centered at this time. But the conversation, uh, it just, it does seem a little bit strange. Um, remember, if John's mother is there, and Matthew says that the mother of the sons of Zebedee is there, so even if it's not Jesus' aunt, John's mom is there, according to Matthew's Gospel. 
Now, John already has a mother. And remember, Mary also has other children. There's James, there's Jude, and there's others. Neither Mary nor John are orphaned in this sense at this moment. So why would Jesus say this? Well, it, on the one hand, it would be perfectly sensible for Mary to be cared by her family, her, ne her nephews, perhaps. Uh, remember, the half-brothers of Jesus are not believers. They are antagonistic towards Jesus at this time, and the faith that their mother places in him would be strange and, and they'd be unsympathetic towards that faith. When Jesus says, the ones who do my will are my mother, my brothers, and my sisters, he is saying there's a closeness within the faith that is stronger and deeper than the closeness of biological family. And now as Jesus dies, he directs John and Mary to each other as those who are family, beyond family, because of their love for Jesus. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. So they took this command seriously. That night, Mary was at John's house. John cared for Mary as, as he would his mother. It's a beautiful picture of the fellowship that exists with those who adore Jesus, who come to the cross, who enter into the sorrow of God, and who love his Son. Jesus brings those people together around himself. Mary and John are fulfillments here of the people who would eat around the Passover lamb and even the other sacrifices. They are becoming closer than family because they have the sacrifice in common. Mary and John loved Jesus more than anyone else. Jesus wills to bring you into fellowship with people that love him. That's what he does for John and Mary at this moment. Finally, verses 28 through 30, says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. This phrase, accomplished, is used to refer to his death in the Gospels. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus speaks with Moses and Elijah about the death that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 12, verse 50, it says, But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. So now Jesus knows his death is near. He says, I thirst, and receives sour wine. Now at the beginning of his crucifixion, he was offered this drink mixed with myrrh, and he refused it. Many say it was offered as kind of a painkiller, which is why he refused now he accepts that a drink in order to wet his lips, to wet his throat, so that he can make his one last victorious declaration. It is finished. One word in the Greek uh, could be roughly translated as paid in full. Reading from a pastor, uh, Pastor David Guzik here, he says, Jesus' final word to Telestai was the cry of a winner. Jesus had finished the eternal purpose of the cross. It stands today as a finished work, the foundation of all Christian peace and faith, praying in the full in full the debt we righteously owed to God and making peace between God and man. It is finished. All the types, the promises, the prophecies of the old covenant were were finished in Christ. They became shadows, he is the substance. The sacrifices and the ceremonies and the priesthood 
were finished. The perfect obedience, the perfect life that God required was finished. The satisfaction of God's justice for sin was finished. The power of Satan, sin, and death was finished. We'll finish up with a word from Charles Spurgeon. Has he finished his work for me? Then I must get to work for him. And I must persevere until I finish my work too. Not to save myself, for that is all done, but because I am saved. This is what the death of Christ has accomplished. Because he died, you may live forgiven and freed and redeemed. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for what you have done for us. We do not know the fullness of what you experienced, but we see that you love us. We see that you love us very much. We pray that you would continue to pour out the love of God into our hearts. Bless your church. Amen.